presenting part four of the full cast audiobook presentation of Dominion, read by the author. Thirteen. <sighs> Turns out, getting a souped-up prosthetic leg does make me useful after all. I should have known. Junko and Dina outdid themselves with their creation, turning my leg into a kickboxer's dream. I packed the power of ten horses in a single kick, able to bend steel beams like paper straws. Chuck Norris would tremble. The downside was I had to agree to removing the rest of my leg in order to attach it to the hip. I figured why not, that's little league stuff compared to what I've been through, and with Jesus by my side handing out the instant heels, recovery was a snap. While it feels good to have two legs again, it also makes Bromdeer consider me an asset to the infiltration team. Not to mention the fact Dina begged him to take me along for testing and data collection. I didn't want to come, but how can I complain after they rescued me from the firm? I owe them. I think. I'm still undecided over whether this is a simulation and if it's all pointless. But what I have decided is that at this point, it doesn't matter. Pain here is as real as I've ever felt. Until I can find a way to leave, I'm better off trying to survive rather than gamble on a game over. I've watched Sword Art Online. I'm not willing to risk my brain getting microwaved if I'm wrong. This place is sadistic, so I wouldn't put it past any possible developers. But neither do I want to endure the kind of suffering I've faced so far. It's enough to shatter a person's mind. As crazy as this place is, as outlandish as my reality seems. What if this is real? If I run to my death, that's it. End of story. I'm just another crazy guy who thought he could jump off a building and fly. I'm not sure I want that anymore. Maybe it's my gamer spirit. Maybe I'm pissed that fate robbed me of the ability to kill myself. Or maybe it's the basic human urge to survive. I think I'm just scared to die. This is it, Bromdeer announces, parking the van inside an alleyway. Since I'm by the door, I exit through the back first. Class, Puck, and Chup follow suit with Bromdeer on their heels. The plan is for the Turtle Bros to guard the door while Bromdeer and I interrogate the doctor. Belvedere sent Jesus, Tom, and Tick on a separate mission. Because of her unpredictability and insatiable thirst for murder, it was decided Tick was better off under their supervision. Dressed in concealing clothing, with Bromdeer in the lead, we walk the short distance down the street to our target location. I look around, feeling a bit confused. Kind of a shady place for a doctor to live, don't you think? Sure this is the right place? I say. It's straight up slums. Dirty streets, dilapidated apartment buildings, trash littered sidewalks, and I'm pretty sure that's the alien equivalent of a crack whore working the corner. This entire place screams rock bottom. Bromdeer marches forward. That's what I'm told. Reminds me of the sewers, Puck says. His brothers nod in agreement. Right? I say. This place is a dump. Why is the media taking advice from a medical professional who lives in a place like this? It doesn't exactly inspire confidence. Aren't doctors wealthy? We'll have our answers soon, Bromdeer says, stepping up to the front door. For now, we'll use this place to our advantage and blend in. What's the holdup? 
I say, uncomfortable with how long we're lingering. We're gonna be seen. The door's unlocked. So what are we still doing out here? The door was unlocked before we arrived. Why would someone with an integral role in the quarantines be so careless with his safety? I mean, look around. I wave a hand at the street. There are literally holes in the walls of these buildings. I'd be surprised if the plumbing works. Stay alert. Something's not right. He says, before carefully leading us inside. That I do not doubt. But I feel too exposed out here to care. Inside is more of the same. A small foyer as run down as the rest. Dust motes float in the air, with cobwebs decorating the furniture and ceiling. Dirt and grime stain the walls. Only one thing stands out as different from the rest. A metallic laboratory door at the far end of the room. Well, that's different, I say. Bromdeer approaches the door, giving it a shove. <sighs> it's sealed shut. Clask leans in around him. That a lock pad? A retinal scanner. Without the doctor's eyes, there's no way in. It would take a battering ram to get through. Everyone turns to me. I crack my fingers. Guess this is my time to shine. Clask and Bromdeer move aside. I square up to the door. So do I just, like, front kick it? Is there a form to follow, or...? Kick the damn door down already, Bromdeer says. Just as I lift my leg for a straight front kick, we hear a hiss of air. I set my foot back down. The fuck is that? In answer, a gaseous fog rapidly begins filling the room. It's a trap, Puck shouts. We turn to leave, but a second metallic door slides down from the ceiling to block our escape. Puck, Chop, make way! Bromdeer shoves me towards the front, expecting me to kick the door down. But it's too late. The effects of the gas are already setting in. My vision swims. I begin to fall, and I'm out before I hit the floor. I awake to the sound of buzzing fluorescent lights. Or is that a drill? The noise swirls in my head as my surroundings begin taking shape. The air smells like disinfectant and burnt meat. I try to rise. But I can't move. My arms and legs are held down. To what? A metal slab? No. A surgical table? A silver tray containing medical tools next to my head confirms it. My heart races. I struggle uselessly against my bonds. I can't believe I'm trapped like this again! My attempts to speak are met with garbled gibberish. What the fuck was I drugged with? The buzzing stops. I see you're awake. Footsteps. Then a face above my own. A small, wizened man with goblin ears and a sadistic grin peers down at me. Dr. Fotz. He checks the time on his watch. I've never gassed more than three at once before tonight. A new record. And now I know I can complete three examinations before the effects wear off for the fourth. Motherfucker. I slur. In response, he flips my table up vertically so I face him. My vision is cleared enough for me to distinguish details. I'm in a lab. It's a stark difference in the scene outside. And what I see makes me wish I was still under the effects of the gas. Chup, Puck, 
and clask are each fastened to their own table. Their entire bodies have been cracked open from top to bottom, their insides on display. My stomach heaves. The terror inside of it makes me wretch. All types of tools and chemicals lay strewn about the place. He tortured them, feeding some sick impulse to mutilate living beings. Poor Chup had his entire innards barbecued, which explains the smell. Motherfucker! I growl. I put on a brave front, and I feel ready to piss myself. No need to worry. They never felt a thing, he says, picking up a scalpel, still grinning wickedly. But with the sedative fading, I cannot say the same for you. The sound of struggle pulls our attention to my left. It's Bromdeer, trying to break free of his bonds. Thank Christ, he's still alive. But for how long? Good, good, Dr. Fott says excitedly. I've never had a live audience before. Could never wait long enough for them to wake up. Do we have a volunteer? Bromdeer roars. A savage, vein-popping, thunderous howl. His red eye flares brightly. It's enough to make Dr. Fott step back in surprise. Very well, he says, face stoic. Looks like you're up, big fella. It makes sense now. Why a doctor lives in the most undesirable part of town. It's the perfect fishing hole for a mutilation-happy psychopath. Is anyone going to notice when a junkie goes missing? The number of attempted robberies on this place must be off the charts. Anyone going through withdrawals wouldn't be able to help themselves. And every one of them likely fell into his trap. All dead. Just like we're going to be if we don't get out of here. Bromdeer is flipped upright. His table rolled closer to the corpses of his friends. His physiology must be helping him overcome the debilitating effects of the gas because his speech is perfectly fine as he directs his rage at our captor. I'm going to rip your fucking head off! Big words for a big man caught in a big mess, the doctor says. Bromdeer struggles for all he's worth, but there's no use. His restraints don't give. In a display of dominance, Dr. Fotz even stands there with his arms behind his back, chin tilted up and grinning like the Cyclops' anger is amusing. When it becomes clear he isn't going anywhere, Bromdeer settles for glaring at the bastard instead, saying, How did a lunatic like you manage to convince the firm to quarantine thousands of people? Ah, yes, that. The mad doctor turns his back to us, pulling on latex gloves with a snap. It was simple, really. I stuck to my script and was handsomely paid for it. Would you care to see one of the many new toys I used the money on? He rifles through a drawer. When he turns back to face us, he holds out a robotic spider that spreads over his right hand. The click of its legs sends shivers down my spine. I don't feel good about this. Bromdeer struggles again. Without a word, Dr. Fotz approaches him and places the spider on his left wrist. The spider stabs down with his abdomen and punctures Bromdeer's skin. He grunts in pain, continuing the struggle. The spider begins carefully circling around his arm, 
pulling a metallic thread connected to the puncture wound, wrapping its way up the length. It stops when it reaches his shoulder, then latches on, pulls, and constricts. Bromdeer howls in pain as a thin metal line tightens and digs into his arm. His skin begins to break. Red blood drips down his arm. He thrashes around more violently now, recognizing the danger. I can hardly stand to watch, because I know I'm next. Dr. Fox's face is a mask of pleasure as a spider completes his task, entirely severing Bromdeer's left arm. It falls to the floor in dozens of pieces. The Cyclops screams in agony, eye flaring brightly and staring into nothing until finally he faints. I scream too. Dr. Fox appears satisfied with the results, but disappointed his subject didn't remain conscious. Sadistic fuck likely wants to drag out the process. Shame. He says, examining the open shoulder wound where blood gushes freely. He'll bleed out soon if it isn't treated. But well worth the money. He turns and focuses his attention on me now. I think I pee a little. I can't tell. My body's still a bit numb. But if I did, it's the thought of losing another limb that does it. He grabs me by the face with a hand turning it from side to side, inspecting my eyes. Once satisfied, he gives my cheek a little tap and returns to his toolbox of horrors. They needed a medical professional, dishonest enough to accept a bribe, he says, answering what I assume is Bromdeer's earlier question, probably because he expects us to be dead soon. As you can tell, adhering to the rules of the ethics board isn't my highest priority. Who are they? I ask, coherent enough to speak at last. The longer I keep him talking, the longer I get to keep my appendages. He waves a hand over his shoulder, continuing to search through his tools. They call themselves the Union. An organization with ambitions of overthrowing the fam. But what do I care? There's only one thing I crave... He turns around, holding a tubular device that reminds me of a flashlight. Oh god, no. He's gonna chop off my fucking dick, isn't he? Now it's my turn to thrash against my restraints. I scream like a maniac. One appendage I do not want to witness being removed is my penis. Gotta keep him talking. For what purpose, I don't know. But every second my penis is attached to me is a gift. Uh, why lie about a cure? I ask frantically. What does the Union have to gain? To give the illusion the sea virus is more dangerous than it is, you simpleton. He says, like it's obvious. It was to push the firm's hand into establishing a quarantine zone. A threat to the economy is unacceptable. And what's the simplest way to stop the spread? Isolate the infected. Which will piss off enough people to challenge them, I say, connecting the pieces. A step towards taking down the firm. But if the danger is exaggerated, why hasn't other doctors come out to speak against you? Are there no second opinions in outer space? I only know the Union said they take care of it. Either way, I really don't care. Win or lose, I got paid. 
He gives the tube a twist and approaches me. It revs like a small engine. Question period is over. Fueled by panic, I thrash against my restraints again, and this time feel something give. My turbo leg snaps the metal clamps binding it and rises to connect directly beneath Dr. Fox's chin. My whole foot passes through his head like I'm kicking a water balloon, spraying a dark green mucus onto the ceiling. I stare at his headless body in disbelief, gawking as it first sways, then drops lifelessly to the floor. When the spell breaks, I'm so overcome with relief that I holler, what now, bitch? Thought you'd fuck around and find out, didn't you? I kick at the air for emphasis. But then, Dr. Fots changes into a goddamn frog. Son of a bitch, I say, staring wide-eyed down at the headless amphibian. You green bastards are everywhere. I'm blown away by the revelation. Dr. Fots was a fake all along. Uh, another, uh, what did they call them? Uh, a froglodyte? They must have killed and impersonated him in order to spread their lies about the virus. The guy was a psychopath. It's likely easier to impersonate someone who isn't among high society with lots of friends. Less people digging into why you might be acting differently. Just like Poppy. And just like Mendax. The sound of Bromdeer stirring breaks me out of my shock and budding anger. He's still hurt and bleeding out. If we don't do something soon, I'm gonna lose him. If I return to base as a lone survivor, they might think I'm a double-crosser. Some of them don't trust me as it is. Don't need to give them any more reason not to. I gingerly kick my left foot free so as to not accidentally crush my other ankle. Then, like a gymnast, I kick straight up and do the same to both wrist bindings. Had I tried that move without the leg upgrade, I'd have torn my groin wide open. Dina's gonna love hearing about this. Finally free, I get to work releasing Bromdeer. He's fully awake and wild-eyed by the time I get him lying on the floor, howling a mixture of pain and fury. I'm struck upside the head by his right fist and sent toppling to the side, where he continues to kick at me. It's all good, man. It's me, I say, rolling onto my back, holding up my hands. It's me. We're safe. I'm struck once in the family jewels before he quits. Fuck, man! I say, voice strained and doubled in half. The pain is exquisite. Once I no longer feel my nuts in my throat, I crawl over to his side. It's a bloody mess. I gotta stop the bleeding or else you're fucked. <sighs> Your bedside manners could use some work. He says through gritted teeth and points at a mechanical torch up on a table. Shit. Man, isn't there a less gruesome way to do this? There isn't time. Heat that metal stool and use it to cauterize the wound. The thought of it makes me queasy, but he's weakening. He'll start fading soon if I'm not quick about it. I hurry and put on a pair of gloves and grab the torch. It looks simple enough to operate. I give the handle a practice squeeze, sending a plume of flame in the air. Satisfied, I hold the flame over the stool until it's glowing hot. I pick it up by the legs, feeling the heat through the gloves. This is gonna be messed up. I offer Bromdeer one last questioning look. He nods in response, grim. I keep him lying down because frankly, I have no idea what I'm doing. Then, bracing myself, 
I stamp down hard on the wound. He screams in agony for five eternal seconds, trying his best not to move. Flames burst around the edges. His flesh sizzles, blasting me with the scent of burnt meat. I feel horrible. When I finish, his charred flesh has stopped bleeding. I toss the scorching stool away and drop the unlit torch. When Bromdeer sits up, he punches me in the head. Ow! What the fuck, man? I say, holding my stinging ear. I'm sorry, Habit. That really fucking hurt. He says, gritting his teeth through the pain. Let's get out of here. We need to get you back to base ASAP. You lost a lot of blood. Supporting his weight with the help of my turbo leg, I lift and steady him as he sways on his feet. He's pale and woozy from all the blood loss. He takes one step forward and falls to one knee. It's okay, I got you, I say. We'll take it one step at a time. The worst is behind us now. Not quite, says a raspy, chain smoker's voice. Standing in our path, blocking the exit, is a spider. Triss. 14. Let me declare that giant spider-legged grandma heads have no business sneaking up on people. The sudden sight of her is enough to make me flinch and shout a high-pitched screech of surprise. Doesn't exactly scream heroism. Dear God, I say, give me a warning next time, would ya? Triss steps forward, the tips of her spider legs clicking and clacking on the floor. The sound is unnerving. I fight against a primal urge to run and hide. I have to remember she's one of the good guys. But then, one after the other, each leg is pulled back into her body until she's standing upright on only two. Her torso twists and cracks until two arms hang from her side. The shade of her skin goes from pale to green. Until I'm staring at another fucking frog! Okay, this is getting out of hand, I say. Seriously, is anyone real at this point? I give Bromdeer's ponytail a yank to be sure. He retaliates by elbowing me in the gut, doubling me over. I'm real, you idiot. The froglodyte stops ten paces from us. Feminine curves trace the length of her body, covered in a cloak over a tight dark leather outfit. Slick black hair falls to her shoulders beneath her hood, and she peers at me with black and yellow bulging eyes. Dual blades hang at her hips. Grinning, she trains her bulbous eyes on me and says, It's nice to see you again, Jack. Poppy, I say, recognizing her from the arena. Yes, one of my many names, she says, unsheathing her knives. But those who fall beneath my blades have the privilege of calling me Clinge. I'll call you a piece of shit is what I'll do, I say, trying to sound braver than I feel. I doubt I can take her. I get the feeling Dr. Fox was a fluke, but I'm not going to show weakness to this bitch. You and your whole goddamn crew can fuck right off. I don't want anything to do with you. I just want to go home. She smirks at that. What of your friend? She says, lifting a lazy finger towards Bromdeer. Is that why he came poking around? To find his way home? <sighs> Damn. She's got me there. While my involvement with the Resistance is pure happenstance, 
Bromdeer is definitely an obstacle in her path. We didn't learn anything, I lie. Somehow, I doubt that, she says, glancing up at the green mucus splattered on the ceiling. When a piece of brain matter dislodges and falls, her tongue snaps out to snatch it. Um, gross, I say with a shiver. She grins at my discomfort. I'll tell you what. Give me the big one, and you can go home. I take a hard look at Bromdeer. Our eyes meet. He's nearly wasted as it is. All of his energy is being spent simply staying conscious. With all his blood loss, it's going to be a challenge getting back without him passing out. And I barely know him. But the decision is simple. I flipper the bird. Go fuck yourself! I detect surprise in Bromdeer's expression. I don't think he expected that from me, but he nods and thanks. I might be a lot of things, have my share of character flaws, said and done things I regret. But I'm not about to throw someone to the wolves just to save my own ass. I would have a hard time sleeping at night. Besides, I don't believe her for a second. She's playing with me. I'll get the pointy end of her knives the moment I turn my back. Deep, harsh, croaking laughter echoes from outside. Then, a second Froglodyte wearing the same leathers as Clinge enters the room. Looks like you grew a pair since our time together. I'm impressed. The blood in my veins is set on fire. The sight of him makes me angry enough to consider charging him on the spot. In this place, he's the reason I'm here. The reason for my suffering. It was supposed to be a walrus! Mendax, I whisper in a growl. In the flesh, he says, arms held wide. You like? I preferred the watch, I say. Bromdeer sags in my grip. I'm like Kevin Hart trying to support Shaquille O'Neal. Because of his massive bulk, I struggled to hold him up and he falls on his side. Wincing, I get down to make sure he's alright. Still breathing. Good. Means he won't be awake for when we're stabbed to death. Please, I say. We're beat. He's defenseless. Let me just take him to get help. And we'll stay out of your way. I honestly couldn't give a damn what you do with this place. I just want out. <laughs> but where will you go? Clint says, like there's something I don't know. I narrow my eyes. What does that mean? In response... She reaches for something from her back pocket and tosses it to me. I catch it with both hands. It's Belvedere's eye stalks. I flinch and throw it back to the ground in surprise. You bitch! I curse. What did you do to them? Seems pretty obvious to me. Mendax says, miming having his throat slit. The Union has agents everywhere. Clinch says. This little resistance was becoming a liability. They dug too deep, so they needed to go. I feel sick. I mightn't have known them very long, but they were the first kind people I've met since arriving here. Not to mention they infiltrated a firm stronghold to rescue me. Only because they needed information, but still, anyone else would have left me there to be left inside the helmet? If the resistance hadn't caused the explosion that rocked me out of my pod, would I still be back home inside the helmet? 
I'd be back inside Sarah's house where... where Jesse shoved the same helmet onto my head. Wait a second. Which helmet is the real one? I'm no longer sure which reality is virtual anymore. Could Tom be right after all? Now that my brain fog is lifted, it's easier to think back on how seamless the transitions between realities were. Could Sarah have come over earlier in the day to have me test out Chris's gift? Or did the firm's technology trick me into believing that? This is too much. My heart hammers in my chest. I feel like I'm losing my damn mind. I want to scream. I think you broke him. Mendak says. He's got those crazy eyes you do when you let me put it in your- This is your fault, I say, cutting him off. I'm here because of you! And now you may die proudly, knowing your sacrifice helped serve the Union. Clinch says, stepping forward, bearing her knives. Mendax follows her lead. No, I say, rising to set myself up for a kick. I don't think so. If you want to end up like your friend, Imposter Fox, you're gonna let us leave here. I bet it's not so easy transferring your mind to a new body when your brains are clinging from the ceiling. I don't harbor any doubts they're gonna dice me up and sell the pieces to a shady restaurant, but I'll be damned if I make it easy for them. I've long since had enough. Clinch takes off at me in a sprint. I ready myself for a sidekick, hoping to catch her in the ribs. But at the last moment, she drops into a slide and aims for my legs. Before I can react, I'm taken by surprise by the fact Mendax had been directly in step behind her, keeping pace. When she drops, he jumps, his frog legs lending strength to his hop and flips above my head. I curse as I'm cut along my right cheek and left calf. I spin into a back fist, swinging into empty air. The pair dance out of reach like it's a joke. I ignore the wounds, knowing I risk freaking out if I acknowledge them. So I let the hot blood run down my face and leg, keep my eyes locked on the assassins, and square up to them. But this time, I got an idea. Again, they come at a run. I drop to the floor before they do, and grab the torch. I lay it on thick. Frog legs are on the menu. A white, hot flame fills the air in front of me, catching Clinge off guard and blasting her in the face. She stumbles and scrambles backwards, shouting in pain. Mendax avoids getting sizzled by using her as a shield and diving away. I keep the jet of flame alive long enough to push them back as far as they'll go. When I release the torch's trigger, Clinge stares at me angrily with charred and blackened skin around her left eye, which now looks like a burnt walnut. It's gruesome but I feel a twinge of satisfaction from it. At least I'll have left her a parting gift. <sighs> You'll pay for that, she hisses. Feeling emboldened by the small victory, I go on the offensive, flipping over a metal stretcher and giving it a strong kick. It careens through the air towards them, but just as I'm certain it's going to connect with crushing force, they somersault to the sides, launching shurikens at me midair. My survival instincts urge me to drop to the floor, so I let my body fall next to Bromdeer. I wince as he takes three shuriken in the back. Shit! I didn't mean for that to happen. For the big Cyclops, this normally wouldn't be a problem. But he can't afford to lose another drop of blood right now. He needs to be kept safe. We need Jesus. 
I'd even welcome intake with open arms. Apologizing to the dead, I stand and kick out the bottom of Chup's stretcher, sending it crashing to the floor. I position Bromdeer beneath the burnt-out turtle shell. It's not much, but it's the best I can do considering the circumstance. Klinge and Mendak separate and run along each side of the room. They're going for a dual approach. No matter who I turn to face, the other is going to catch me from behind. This could be a problem. As predicted, I panic at their coordinated approach and kick out wildly in a circle. Like an idiot, I spin in the air and crash to the floor. No skill and no practice makes for a big fail. They instantly set upon me with a flurry of kicks and punches. They want to beat the hell out of me before I'm murdered. Luckily, while being tenderized, my fingers make contact with a fallen scalpel and I latch onto it. I blindly strike out, hoping to connect with someone. When Mendax yells, Ah! Fucking hell! I know I left him with a parting gift as well. My fucking knee! He says, yanking the small blade from out of it. He screams in pain. Ah! Holy hell, this hurts! I just got put in this body too, you little shit! Fuck you! <coughs> I say, trying to laugh but choking on it instead. Let's put an end to this. Clinch says, bending over and placing a knife to my throat. Wait. Mendax says, placing a hand on her arm. No, not like this. He needs to suffer for his actions. A quick death would be a mercy. What did you have in mind? She asks, trailing the knife along my face. She digs the tip into the gash on my cheek. I wince, growling, gritting my teeth against the pain. He walks around to where Bromdeer lies sheltered beneath Chup's shell. Wincing against the pain in his knee, he flips the table off of the Cyclops, yanks his head up by the ponytail, then Clinch forces me to watch his throat be split wide open. Blood spurts from the wounds. No! I cry, weakly. Bromdeer's death undoes me. Even though chances were it was already coming to this, I still tried so hard to protect him. Defeat overwhelms me, and my will to fight disappears. Tears flow freely down my face, mixing with the blood. Abandon all hope, Mendak says. And for but a fraction of a moment, his eyes meet mine with a mixture of sorrow and regret, before hardening and letting Bromdeer's head fall limply to the floor with a crack. There's no going back now. Clinch shoves my head aside and takes her place next to Mendax. They stare down at me the same way people look at dog shit. I hate giving them the satisfaction of seeing me like this. Pathetic. She says, glaring at me with her good eye. You should let me finish him here and now. We mustn't keep the superior waiting. We won't, he says. Just a minor detour on our way to the rendezvous. What do you say we send Gula a special delivery? A sinister glint sparkles in her undamaged eye, and she grins wickedly for the first time since being injured. Mm. Are you trying to make me come? I can't help it. I've been trying to put on a brave face, ready to face death with dignity. But anything twisted enough 
to stimulate an orgasm for a psychopath-like clinge scares the shit out of me. 15. Oh, dude! Oh, you don't look so good. It hurts to move, but I turn my head enough to get a look at the guy sitting in the seat next to me. He looks completely human. Brown hair, two eyes, one nose, the works. An hour ago, this would have blown my mind to find someone else just like me in the Dominion. But after all I've been through, I find it hard to care. I'm just... numb. Damn, did you get hit by the bus before boarding? He asks. That gash, it doesn't look good. Your eyes are bloodshot, too. Can you see anything? I nod. Well, don't worry, man. I- I'm sure they'll fix you right up once we get to where we're going. It's gonna be great. I'm Blake. Jack. I croak. I don't recognize you. Were you a member of Paradise Hills? He makes a show of looking around at the assortment of aliens on board, all sniffling and coughing from head colds. <laughs> There's sure a lot of different... People here. I figured there would be. I mean, with the spaceship and all. It's just... I don't know. I think a small part of me still doubted, you know? Everyone laughed at us when they heard about what we were doing. It's not like those Heaven's Gate idiots did us any favors. Mass suicide? Really? The idea is to actually leave the planet, not bury yourself in it. I take a look around. Blake isn't the only human on board. He must have boarded after I did. I kept my eyes closed while resting my head, so I never noticed until now. There are entire families here, apprehensively taking in the sights around them. The name Heaven's Gates rings a bell. Weren't they a cult who killed themselves believing a UFO would take them to the next level? I remember watching a YouTube video about them. You're a cult? I ask. Blake's eyes narrow, becoming defensive. I thought we left behind that sort of bigotry back on Earth, he says, and waves an arm around the bus. Look, man, I I get why people think what Crowley teaches sounds like crazy talk, but look where we are, outer fucking space. We flew across the galaxy on a UFO to get here. Crowley wasn't a kook after all. It happened just like he said. He pauses to give the man Crowley a worrying glance. I just wish he would relax and enjoy the victory. Again... I look at all the moms and dads keeping a close eye on their kids. Poor bastards. I exhale a heavy, drawn-out sigh and say, It isn't what you think it is. What isn't? Blake asks. This, all of this, heaven isn't waiting for you on the other side of where we're heading. Bullshit! Crowley got us this far, so there's no reason for me to believe you. He's leading us back to Paradise Hills, the Garden of Eden, where the chosen few will die miserably at the hands of monsters, I say, cutting him off and finishing his sentence. This isn't a tour bus to Paradise. It's a government shuttle to a restricted quarantine zone. We're being brought to God knows where. All I know is it isn't gonna be pretty. To drive the point home, I direct his attention to the armed firm droids at the front and back of the bus. His face reveals a crack in his faith. The memory of Klinge's sadistic expression still haunts me. Whatever I'm heading into, the thought was enough to make her shiver with pleasure. All I know is Gula is top brass. 
one of seven firm members. If he's anything like the others I've encountered, I can only assume more of the same. Which sucks the big one. No! He says, now less certain. No, you're wrong. I'm sorry, but it looks like you drank the metaphorical Kool-Aid. How do you know this? Because two shape-shifting aliens who handed me my ass also put me here to be sent to die. The way Klinge and Mendax transformed into firm droids and so effortlessly infiltrated their ranks makes me wonder just how many Froglodyte impersonators are out there. The way they walked me in and shoved me into a line of people being taken into quarantine. From the little I was able to make sense of, it sounds like the zone is contained to a smaller space station outside of the Dominion. I just don't know what Gula has to do with any of this. Maybe he's over there overseeing the operation. But considering Klinge's reaction, I'm positive there's something more sinister going on behind closed doors. I'm sorry. A pudgy blonde woman in the seat in front of us turns to face me. Sent to die? Did I hear that right? Why would you say something like that? He's lying, Blake says. Take a look around, I say, voice unnecessarily hard. This is a busload of sick aliens on their way to segregation. Except, from my experience here, nothing is as it appears. My mind and body have been violated in ways I'd never wish on my worst enemy. What do I gain from lying to you? Blake clenches his fist on his lap and pointedly looks away from me. The woman stares at me in horror before riding herself in her seat. I can see her right hand clenching the armrest, knuckles white. I stare out the window. A sprawling alien city passes me by. Futuristic, mysterious, concealing all manners of horrors in its shadows. It's hard to comprehend how this is only one of multiple floors, each level a gargantuan metropolis of its own. It's a madman's paradise for the abducted cult members. Am I being harsh? Well, that's a stupid question. Of course I am. Pain is transformative. A wounded animal will snap at anybody, even those who are only trying to help. Everything hurts. I should be taken to a hospital. I have every reason to be miserable. But it's no excuse to go off on these folks like that. They're victims too. Without turning away from the window, I sigh and say, Look, I'm sorry for being a jerk. I've been through a lot. Radio silence. Blake's not having any of it. I turn to him. He's staring straight ahead, eyes knit with anger, foot tapping anxiously. I've opened him up to the possibility that this could be a death trap after all. But he doesn't want to believe it. It would mean everyone who told him Crowley would get him killed were right. Maybe not like how they predicted, but they were right. This will be the end of him. And he's cracking up. I feel like a dick, because I get it. It's a mindfuck. Call it cold. But even now, I try not to acknowledge the presence of the kids on board. The most tragic victims of all. Because what am I supposed to do? They're being shepherded through a carnival of horrors into a gruesome fate I'm also destined for. Even with my turbo leg, I'm not much of a threat when they can simply shoot me down. Without the resistance, hope is lost. I can't even imagine Jesus showing up where we're going. And if the firm managed to subdue Tick at the Coliseum, 
Not even her whirlwind of death and destruction could save us before being neutralized. I can't have that. I don't want anyone else getting harmed on my behalf. It disturbed me, but in some weird way, after sharing a symbiotic relationship together, I feel a connection with her. Like a small, inconsolable part of me longs to be reunited. It scares the hell out of me, because I can say with absolute certainty, I don't want any of that again. But it's there. I spend the remainder of the ride in silence, like an inmate being led through death row. Besides the constant coughing and sneezing from the sick, I get the feeling it'll be the last peace and quiet I'll be afforded. Might as well make the best of it, gazing at the artificial sky above. Blake's foot is practically bouncing off the floor by the time we reach our destination, a government airport-style terminal station with portals lined against the wall. He's drenched in sweat, gripping and ungripping his pants in a nervous gesture. Knowledge can be a curse when you're the lamb to the slaughter. He looks like a prisoner ready to walk the plank into shark-infested waters. It's okay, I say, despite knowing the opposite. It's just one of those things you say to people who are freaking out. It's gonna be alright, just take a deep breath. Unfortunately, my words have the opposite effect and tip him over the edge. Crowley, you bastard! He shouts, standing up to point at the man. Where the fuck have you brought us? Kids who've been barely keeping it together lose to their fear and begin to cry. A few of the mothers teeter on the edge of hysterics. Crowley looks just as afraid as they do. Shut your fucking mouth, Blake! Another man growls. You're scaring the kids! Crowley! Blake says, unfazed. What are all these sick aliens? Where are they taking us? Where's the promised paradise? For Christ's sake, sit down! A woman yells. Blake can no longer be reasoned with. I feel guilty having paved the way for this, but I remind myself it's not my fault they're in this situation. Whether or not I broke the news to them, the end result remains the same. Still, I feel bad. And then I feel a whole lot worse when a firm droid comes over saying, Please remain calm. And knocks him out with the butt of his rifle. Kids, women, and men scream in horror when the firm droid continues to beat Blake's head in until it's a bloody broken mess on the aisle floor. Even I flinch at the sudden brutality of it all. The other sick aliens on board are visibly shook as well. Please remain calm, it says, emotionless, then returns to its position at the front leaving Blake's blood to pool around our feet. Nobody makes a sound. The kids who can't help it have their terrified parents' hands clamped over their mouths. Even the aliens are afraid to cough. And every single one of their eyes are locked on Crowley, who's melting into a seat, trying to look as small as he can. The illusion has finally shattered. Five minutes pass before we're herded out of the bus into three straight lines to stand in front of the leftmost portal. It's smaller than the others, seeing a lot less movement coming to and from. A garbage truck the size of my house backs up to a central portal, lifting its container and dumping garbage that disappears into who knows where. Maybe it's ejected into space. And trash could float through the galaxy for millions of years without affecting anything, if ever. I wonder how many political enemies the firm has launched into the cold, dark void. Unlike the other portals, nobody leaves this one. The quarantine zone must wait on the other side, and with it, Gula. Forward, the firm droids say in unison. They shove the end of their rifles in our backs, pushing us forward. 
A little boy starts to wail, causing a chain reaction with the others. How can the fern do this? A blue-skinned Quasimodo-looking alien says. We have rights. You can't cordon us off like animals. It's just a cold for fuck's sakes. You have no business kidnapping us from our homes like this. Others like him join in the chorus of panicked voices pleading to be set free. When they start to step out of line, the firm droids act without mercy as I expected they would. Quasimodo is clobbered to death for being the first to speak up. They sure don't like wasting their ammo. Each execution is a spectacle of savagery, meant to drive the message home. Resist and regret it. My ribs ache and I wince as I push forward roughly. They're done with being gentle about it. Now that we're behind government walls, there's no longer any point in pretending what this is about. The facade is up. We're not here on vacation. Nobody checks out of this hotel. I'm sorry. I hear Crowley cry weakly in the line next to mine. He weeps, repeating the same phrase. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's his fault these people are here. I feel sorry for the guy. He wasn't lying when he spread his UFO gospel. A real-life alien really did make contact and sold him on the fantasy of Paradise Hills. Unfortunately for him, he was just the next victim of an intergalactic human trafficking ring. Maybe Heaven's Gate had the right idea after all. We're pushed through the portal three at a time. More people cry and whimper as the first ones make the transition, terrified of the unknown. When it's my turn to cross the threshold, I take a deep breath, pulse pounding in my ears, embrace myself for whatever's waiting on the other side. 16. I enter the gate to thunderous applause and a personal nightmare. My parents weren't the sort to monitor what I watched when it came to TV and movies. As long as there wasn't straight up sex, I was free to watch whatever messed up shit I wanted, courtesy of the horror genre. Which, by the way, never stopped me from seeing nudity. Horror movies, especially 80s era, are full of boobs. The good ones, anyway. But it always struck me funny how my parents were more concerned about me seeing a nipple than they were about me watching a man with knives for fingers brutally murder a bunch of kids from within their dreams. In a way, my childhood was a blur of horror movies and violent video games. I witnessed more on-screen suffering than I received hugs. Suffice it to say, I've seen a lot of fucked up shit. Definitely things no kid should bear witness to if they want to avoid sadistic, recurring nightmares. The most disturbing scenes left a mark on my little mind, incapable of processing the on-screen horror. But nothing has scarred me the way a scene from 1989's Puppet Master has. Leech Woman. As a kid, anything to do with living killer toys scared the bejesus out of me. Chucky was another childhood terror, but nothing bore down into my soul and shook me the way Leech Woman did. She was a pretty, pale-skinned puppet with long black hair and dressed in a pink robe. The bad part? She had a never-ending leech for a tongue. The way my parents worked so hard to shelter me from sex, the more sacred the idea became. It was a club I wasn't part of, the ultimate taboo. But by God, someday I would be. Till then, 
and masturbated like I was an athlete training for the Olympics. So when Leech Woman's tongue snaked its way in and out of a man's chest who was tied to a bed for kinky sex, it struck something deep. She was defiling the sanctity of intimacy, turning what I could only imagine was the ultimate pleasure into a twisted version of itself. I have never allowed a partner to tie me up during sex because of it. The worst part is my mother had a porcelain doll sitting displayed in the hallway that looked eerily similar to Leech Woman. It haunted me for years, always smiling, always watching me every time I passed by, hiding what I was sure was a monstrously long leech inside her mouth, ready to have its way with me. I couldn't bring myself to ever look her in the face, fearing what I might discover. I hated that doll with every fiber of my soul. So, standing here in the middle of a room full of aliens wearing porcelain masquerade masks is setting off all kinds of triggers. We emerge from a portal built directly center floor in the midst of a black and golden masquerade ball. Tables line the walls holding mountains of drinks and exotic food. Firm droids escort us through like a standard procedure. Just another day on the job. All the while, masqueraders dart in and out of view as they laugh and jeer at us in a mad twirling dance. I fold into myself, unable to meet their porcelain faces, teetering on the edge of panic as the image of Leech Woman hammers my psyche over and over again. They laugh all the wilder, delighted by my discomfort. We're led out of the ballroom through a large red-framed doorway that opens up to a kitchen. Alien chefs raise their heads to appraise us. Holy fuck, guys! A short, hairy gremlin says. Do you think you might have overdid it without a human this batch? Give us some fucking variety, would ya? My blood freezes. Variety? Now that she mentions it, when I examine what's being butchered, I realize their limbs. An assortment of arms, legs, and various body parts from all sorts of aliens. This is what they're doing. With the sick, they're being slaughtered for food. We really are lambs being led to the slaughter. How are the clients supposed to get their money's worth when they're being served the likes of these? Says another more rotund chef, who's peeling the nails off a bucket full of fingers. The fuck are we supposed to do with the little ones? It'll take five of them to scrape up enough meat for a single appetizer. Everyone's losing it now. Firm droids smack and beat us back into submission, never letting the momentum slow. Anyone who holds us up doesn't for long, and those that do get the plate treatment. What's the point of bringing us fresh produce if you're gonna smash it all over the floor, you fucking idiots? The gremlin says. I can sense her frustration through the force she's chopping up tentacles. These android fuckheads are dumber than a sack of doorknobs. A bell rings and a dumbwaiter big enough to fit a football team inside of opens up to reveal a mound of fresh corpses ready for butchering. I think about all the piles and piles of food filling every table out at the masquerade party. How we were greeted with applause that quickly turned to jeering laughter. Those psychopaths are eating people! And they've set up a party around the portal entrance to make a show of who's next on the menu. The amount of evil required to be that cruel is difficult to comprehend. 
I've heard of shady underground organizations who serve wealthy, well-connected clientele, exotic foods that are often illegal in many countries. Sharks fins, tigers, pandas, gorillas, the sort of animals decent people would never dream of eating. And it directly supports the poachers who feed into the black market. For the Dominion's own governing body to be directly hosting a cannibalistic hoedown means nothing and no one is safe from the almighty dollar. As long as you got the cash, you can evidently eat your goddamn neighbor. We're corralled to a giant laundry chute at the far end of the kitchen. A sick feeling runs through me as I guess its purpose. A firm droid unlocks a metal grate covering the opening and slides it to the side. He points a metallic finger down into the darkness below. We all shuffle back in unison before quickly hitting a wall of droids determined not to let us move a step further. A furry blue chef nudges a furry red one with his elbow. This is my favorite part. I love the sound it makes as they fall. The hardest thing about all this, worse than my own fear, is the sound of crying kids. I've never been able to stomach children in danger, which makes it all the worse knowing there's nothing I can do for them. The firm droids holding us take a step forward, closing the gap. Humans and aliens alike push and claw at each other, reaching for the back of the line, desperately trying to extend the time they have up here. Crowley, you son of a bitch! Someone shouts, I'm gonna break your fucking neck! I'm roughly shoved to the side and crushed between metal and flesh as a tall, burly man sporting a trim beard plows his way through the mob and reaches for Crowley. He grabs the cult leader by the hair with both hands and shakes him around like a madman. Due to the lack of elbow room, unable to cause the damage he'd like, the big man's hands lower to wrap around his throat. Face red, eyes bulging, Crowley struggles to break the man's grip, beating and clawing at his arms and face. No, another man says, don't let him off that easy. He brought us here. If this is our fate, then he needs to face this too. Throw him into the hole first. Those in agreement rally behind the idea and push Crowley up to the front, glad to have anyone but them be the first to go. Even the aliens are happy to sacrifice him. No! Crowley's scream is blood curdling. No! A wave of hands carry him to the edge where he teeters precariously. I'm certain any moment his heart is going to burst from terror before taking the plunge. And to what exactly? A grinder? A pit of spikes? An octopus waiting to peel us like potatoes? I can only hope that whatever it is, death comes quick. The firm droids take another step inward, pushing us closer to the abyss and sending Crowley plummeting into the unknown. His scream reverberates through the tunnel, echoing until it fades out completely. <laughs> See? The furry blue chef says. Classic. The furry red one replies. I nearly piss myself the moment the front of the group begins to plummet. That feeling of there's no going back now is amplified by a thousand. Sandwiched between the pudgy woman from the bus and an uncomfortably moist outlet, the firm droids push the last of us into the pit, where my falsetto reaches new heights. We fall in a tangle of arms, legs, and sound. Our limbs intertwine like a rat king going down, down, down. I slam on top of a mound of people just as the light above winks out from view. 
I'm crushed in turn by softening the fall for the rest who follow And soon buried beneath layers of bodies Everything hurts I can't breathe I'm dying The mound begins to move and shift Deafening cries echo around me And I'm jostled roughly as people struggle to break free I let my body fall where it may Still unable to catch my breath A rush of liquid surges into my mouth as I slide face first into a pool of fluids. I flail around when I right myself, finally able to inhale a breath when I do. Standing on slanted ground, I discover the fluid is waist deep. I'm kind of freaking out about whether it's blood, but then the taste of it finally registers. It's spicy. It tastes oddly like Italian dressing. By the room's dim lighting, I take in my environment. I'm inside a giant bowl. We're being seasoned. I push away some unrecognizable vegetable as it floats into me and notice a lot more of them bobbing up and down. The people who fell in first have been crushed underneath the weight of all those who followed. It's horrible to behold. Half of the dead are underwater, under dressing. Some of them likely drowned while being pummeled from above. When I see a child-sized arm sticking out limply from the pile, I can't help it and add some of my own fluid to the mix. (laughs) If I ever make out of this life, I'll forever be haunted by the wailing cries of the doomed. I look up as a shadow passes over us to see a massive hand reaching in to scoop us up. Those of us who can run do so, slogging our way through the dense liquid as fast as we can. A giant finger grazes my shoulder with enough force to send me falling over and under. I emerge from the dressing in time to see the massive hand clutching a fistful of people. The ones still living scream and beg for help. I watch in horror as they're pulled up and away. It comes again, and this time I'm not so lucky. A giant, pale, rough, callous hand descends upon me with the casual grace of a predator who's done this countless times before. A handful of us are scooped out and deposited on a large countertop. The room was made for a giant. That's a fact. We're in another kind of kitchen where I feel like I've been shrunk to a tenth of my original size, which makes the monster standing before us all the more intimidating. The giant pale hand belongs to a disfigured ogre towering before us. His face is a gnarl of scars twisting in on itself, with two jagged holes where his mouth and nose should be. Two glassy black eyes look me over as if appraising a slice of ham. It doesn't see the person in me whatsoever, just the meat. When he takes a step back, I see that he's naked and sporting a dong the size of the bus that we drove up in. It's one of those things you can't look away from no matter how much you want to. How often do you see a dick the size of some people's homes? What's also weird is it's full of crisscrossing scars. A few people try and run for it, but are quickly flattened by the ogre's fist. At this point, it apparently doesn't matter whether we're dead or alive. Several dumbwaiters line the wall opposite of us, which explains the source of the one above. With six in total, that means there's more than one kitchen in operation. Makes me wonder just how big this place is. We're supposed to be on a separate space station, right? It's got to be massive. Now that I think of it, we could be anywhere. On a different floor of the Dominion, for all we know. It doesn't matter. 
We're trapped inside a cannibal sanctuary disguised as an act of public safety. Ever since being abducted, I often felt like I was just about to die. But this is the first time I felt damned to it. No words can fully explain how soul-crushing it is. A smaller door built into the bottom of a larger one swings open. Two hulking, tusked, boar-like aliens half the size of the ogre enter the room, pulling an empty cart behind them. They're like Bebop on steroids. What's the holdup, ass face? Brown Boar says. You think Gula's got time to wait around while you play with yourself? While he reaches for something in the cart, Black Boar says, Think because you got that big cock you can take it easy whenever you like? The ogre's gnarled mouth twists even further with a growl. Brown Boar's arm lashes out with sudden speed and whips the giant dick that's pretty much level with them. The ogre flinches, his face screwing up in pain as a long gash opens up, splitting previously healed scars. The fight dies out of him immediately. Can't say I blame him. He shields his mutilated penis with both hands, bowing his head in submission. No, he says, like speaking doesn't come naturally. Then stop gobbling your knob and package the ingredients, Black Boar says. Gula wants two members from eight different species. Proto! Brown Boar raises a fist, feigning another strike, and laughs when the ogre flinches. What are you waiting for? Hurry, or I'll cut it off and use it to fuck your arse of a face. God damn! The ogre slams his open palms on the counter and screams at us in frustration. Despite being utterly terrifying, and the fact he's prepping us for supper, I sort of feel bad for him. He's just another poor fucker stuck under the firm's boot inside this ferris wheel of horrors. Statler and Waldorf never give up heckling the ogre as he angrily works sorting through each of us. Coffin-sized glass boxes are placed in rows behind us, then filled with members of each species, dead or alive. Everybody's freaking out, but the ones sealed inside a box with a dead body really lose their minds. Me and another guy are smushed into one together, our bodies pressed tightly. I think he shit himself, because that's more than Italian dressing I smell. Now get them on the cart, Brown Boar says, his whip snap in the air. And if we come back and catch you diddling yourself, we'll split it straight in half, Black Boar says. The ogre slams a fist on the counter, as if to say, I never touch myself. One by one, we're packed onto the cart. Our box is stacked in the middle, so I can see people with fur, scales, tentacles, and feathers sandwiched all around me. It's extremely claustrophobic and already hard to breathe because of the smell, tight confines, and the state of my body. Without the air slits cut in the top and bottom, we'd suffocate. Part of me wonders, why am I still trying to hold on? Why bother trying to survive when all seems lost? Why prolong the pain? The inevitable. Basic survival instincts, I guess. Making that leap is not easy, even when you want to. The human spirit has a hard time letting go. <laughs> we best be getting these morsels to Gula ASAP. I hear Brown Boar's muffled voice saying through the cries and glass. A black cloth is draped over the cart, casting us in darkness, and I hear Black Boar say, What round are they at now? Got to be getting close to the finale, aren't they? The cart rolls forward, 
further muffling their voices and making it impossible to discern. Fuck, 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 the guy in here says with me. I can feel him shaking. It's hard to tell since I'm doing enough of my own. Stay calm, I say. It's gonna be okay. How can you say that? My family was crushed inside the mixing bowl. We're fucked. 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 He screams and thrashes in panic, sending bolts of pain lancing through me. In such tight confines, and unable to lift my hands to cover my ears, his scream is like passing a needle through my head. Instant tinnitus. God damn it, I say. Not so loud, would ya? I get it, man. I'm freaking out too. I just thought it was what I was supposed to say. I use my turbo leg to knee him in the groin, knocking the wind from his sails and shutting him up. I'm sorry, I say, not sorry, but I've gotten out of what felt like impossible situations before. I was even saved by Jesus once. It's fucking bananas. But what's certain is we're never getting out of this alive if we crack up now. I don't believe a word I say. I feel like it really is the end of the road this time. The resistance is dead. I could be anywhere, completely off the radar. Sometimes, hope truly is lost. What's your name? I ask, trying to keep us both distracted. I'm Jack. Luis, he says, shaken. I'm sorry about your family, Luis. He chokes on a sob. The sound is heartbreaking. I've been through a lot, and I can't imagine that sort of pain. Losing the people you love and cherish the most, especially like this? I don't blame him for breaking down. I'm going to make these fuckers pay, he says. Before long, our muffled cries are drowned out by cheering. My blood freezes as images of the porcelain faces flood my mind. After being pulled ahead a short distance, we come to a halt, with the black cover still concealing us. Why have we come here? Horrible possibilities race through my mind. None that I want to entertain for longer than a second. A loud voice says over what sounds like stadium speakers. It's time! My heart hammers as I digest the significance of his words. Have we been brought here to compete in something? Am I about to be subjected to a second tournament of nightmares? To be made to fight each other over the illusion of survival? For God's sakes, I can't do this again! For this individual challenge, you'll be using only the freshest ingredients to ignite the imagination of the judges. The cover is whipped off the cart, revealing us to the crowd. They laugh like it's a joke. The boars line us up to stand in a row. Of course, it seems obvious now. We're not contestants in a challenge. We're the not-so-secret ingredients. In a goddamn cooking competition. Holy fuck. I'm in Hell's Kitchen. A cannibalistic space version of it anyway. I'm half expecting an alien variant of Gordon Ramsay to jump out and start cursing at everyone to get started. Eight chefs of different alien races stand lined up before us, ranging from disarmingly cute to freakishly frightening. I'm struck by how creepy it is seeing a chubby Cupid with floppy rabbit ears seem eager to cut into us. I get the feeling I'll be added to a risotto real soon. A large crowd cheers on from behind, still dressed in full masquerade. I cringe at the sight. 
A large kitchen spans the area in front of us with several cooking stations. And past it, a raised dais seats what I assume are the judges. Two finely dressed aliens sit on each side. But the one in the middle, that's gotta be Gula. The firm's very own patron to this crime against humanity. Or whatever the term is for multiple species. Alienhood? Just plain life? Nearly naked and almost as tall as the pale ogre with the giant dong, pig-faced and overflowing with fat. His double chin has a double chin, and every part of his blue-tinted body is rolling with hills of lard. Two long horns sprout from his head, his fat rippling like waves on a sea of flesh. Get on with it, he shouts, waving an arm impatiently, his booming voice rattling the dishes. The show is set in motion, Each chef runs up to grab their own container at random, along with their own personal firm droids to assist them. A wide-eyed, skinny, vulture-like chef looks our box over, anxiously wringing his hands together. He looks unsure of himself, but motions for both of his droids to help carry it to a station. A long-jawed, fanged woman calls over to our chef from across the kitchen. Mert, make sure you don't leave the gas running this time. You can't afford to face elimination again. Mert nervously checks over his station to make sure everything's in order. Shit, he says, noticing he'd done just that, hoping no one has noticed. Luis and I share a meaningful look, seeming to understand each other's intentions. If the stars align, we're blowing this place to hell. We're removed from the glass boxes and have our hands and feet shackled against a tilted surface. I'm immediately relieved to take a breath of something other than Luisa's shit. The room is surprisingly fragrant. I know it's a kitchen, but with what's on the menu, I imagine it'd be hard to stomach. I guess a person really can't resist the smell of gravy, even if they're the one being served in it. Chefs! You have 35 minutes left on the clock, announces a voice from the speakers. Mert appears visibly frazzled by this, scrambling over pots and pans that simmer and boil. I can hear the screams of the others being hacked up to pieces around me. Mert hasn't sliced into us yet, so he could be feeling like he's falling behind. Bring me that one, he says to a firm droid, pointing at Luis. Luis is unshackled and struggles against them. One of the chefs, a reptilian woman, finishes cooking her meal. The two captives being used as food are now unrecognizable. When she brings her plate up to be approved by a hulking head chef, he tastes it and spits it out. It's fucking raw! He shouts, tossing and smashing the plate in classic Ramsey form. The disgraced chef attempts to return to her station to prepare another dish, but is halted by a booming command. Stop! Gula says, pointing a fat finger at her. Come. The audience erupts with sudden, unbridled excitement. The chef looks terrified. Some of her competition seem happy about it. No! Gula roars, unhappy with the speed of things. The reptilian chef climbs a dais, approaching the center throne. You do not have what it takes, he says. Your time in this kitchen has come to an end. Then, shockingly fast for his size, Gula rolls forward and snatches the chef with the agility of a spoiled, overweight kid lunging for cake. He holds her up above his face with both hands. 
She screams when first his mouth opens wide, then his head and shoulders. The entire top part of his body opens up to reveal a cavernous mouth full of rotten teeth ready to devour her. It's horrifying. Using both hands, Gula shoves the screaming chef down his giant gullet, chomping and mashing her to bits. Once finished, his head and shoulders seal up again. Continue! He shouts through a burp. Most of the chefs don't waste a moment, getting back to work and putting what just happened behind them. Mert, on the other hand, well, he's not doing so well. And while he stands locked in shock over the last few moments, he forgot all about turning off the gas on his stove. When I lock eyes with Luis, who's still being held between two droids, I can see he's noticed it too. He doesn't say a word, simply nods. I return the gesture, understanding what's being left unsaid. This is for his family. I brace myself for the end. Without sparing another second, Luis breaks the firm droid's grip on his arms and dives for the stove, slamming his hands on the fire starter. The explosion rocks me to the core. One second I'm watching Luis sacrifice himself to avenge his family, and the next I'm flying through the air, still attached to my table, as a chain reaction of detonations tear a hole through the wall, exposing us all to the vacuum of space. My table gets stuck long enough for me to watch screaming masqueraders be violently sucked out of the room and jettisoned into space. Only Gula manages to hold on. But when a fresh round of explosions rock the room, breaking me free of my restraints, even he is sent soaring as we both fly towards the breach. First me, then him. When I cross the threshold, the breath is sucked out of me and my blood immediately begins to boil. So this is the end. At least I get to watch Gula get stuck in the hole. His face is a mask of shock as first he struggles to breathe, then begins to freeze. Nice work, Luis. Your family would be proud. I hope you get to see them again. As I'm about to die, floating in the space between the Dominion and the smaller space station, my vision slowly fading around the edges, I see a white light. Small at first, but growing larger. Have I been found worthy of heaven? Then, just before darkness consumes me, I discover it's not an angel come to take me, but a man in a small space pod. Two robotic arms extend from its side and pulls me in closer to the glass. When he takes off his space helmet, I realize I've not just been rescued by a man but a king, the king of rock and roll in the flesh, Elvis fucking Presley. Thank you for listening to the full cast audiobook presentation of Dominion. Featuring the voices of Adam Gabriel Beebe as Bromdeer, Arden Shane as Dr. Fox, Nellop as Blackboard, Holly Harris as Clinge, Eurasian Rob as Mendax, James Lawrence as Blake, Bride of Nemo as Lady on the Bus, Spawn of Nemo as Gremlin, and finally me as Jack. 
Stay tuned for part five, the final one. The insanity ain't over yet.